the reason we sang these hymns along with uh, Breathe on Me, Breath of God, is that today is Pentecost Sunday, 50 days after Easter, uh, when we celebrate uh, God pouring out His Spirit in a mighty way upon His church after the resurrection of Christ. And so uh, we, we must remember, we've, we've got to, to realize the, the work of God's Spirit uh, as we live today. He is our very breath as children of the living God. As we uh, look in Ephesians today, we, for those of you that are visiting with us, we have been in a, a series in Ephesians for, uh, well, quite a while. We started last uh, fall, and when we got here to Ephesians 5, we wanted to take a couple of weeks and lay the foundation, again, the foundation that uh, Ephesians 5 and where he talks about husbands and wives, what it is built upon. And so uh, last week we... We did talk about uh, marriage being between one man and one woman. And this week we continue on, but let's give our attention to the latter part of the section on marriage in verse 31 of Ephesians 5 where he quotes, he quotes from uh, Genesis, he quotes from Jesus, who was quoting from Genesis, when he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, as we, as we look at the foundations that you have laid for biblical marriage, will you... Give us submissive hearts. Some of us in this room think we know better than you about marriage. But we don't. You invented it. You created it. And so only you have the right to tell us what marriage ought to be. And so today, Lord, would you give us hearts and minds and ears that can hear you, not hear me, but hear you, and then be willing to conform to what you tell us. Because nobody loves us more than you. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. This week on uh, 
Friday, May the 22nd, Connie and I celebrated our 39th anniversary. I know, Connie doesn't look old enough to have been... You don't have to say that to me later, okay? She celebrated it in St. Louis, Missouri, and I celebrated it here. <laughs> but we actually, it's okay, because we actually celebrated earlier in the week. And uh, here's what we did on our, our anniversary. We, um, you know, a lot of people dress up and, and go to some nice place. And we actually dressed down and went to Polly's front porch and had a hamburger together because that's what we wanted to do. So, so that's okay. Um, and I, I will say this too, that I, I think she really liked the new trailer hitch that I got her for her car. How did he stay married this long? <laughs> Actually, I, that wasn't for our anniversary, but it coincided, so uh, I've been enjoying telling people that anyway. But you may wonder, how, how, how could he stay? How could she stay married to him this long? And I will tell you this, that... Anyone who's been married, and you don't have to be married 39 years to say this, it's any length of time, there are going to be ups and downs in marriages. If those who've been married longer than you tell you otherwise, then you need to question whether they're telling you the truth in other areas too. It doesn't have to be major ups and downs, but there, there will be those times. And that's why this message from God's Word, last week, this week, the next two weeks, I am convinced is always relevant and is so essential that we have it clear in our minds when the world around us is, is redefining what they think we should think about marriage, we can't waver because God has been so clear. I believe it's relevant for any here who are married, who have been married, or who hope to be married. And it's relevant because it's God's Word. Here's, here's the gist. Biblical marriage is one man, one woman who are equally yoked for life. That's God's way. That's the way He says it. So I want us to take a look at this. First of all, the one man and one woman. As I mentioned, the entire sermon last week was about that, and so I'm not going to re-preach it. It's on our website. 
in your outline in the worship guide. I gave you the, uh, where the website is, and if you were not here, I would encourage you to go and listen to that, because that's where it, that's where it has to start. One man and one woman. And we did deal with same-sex attraction and same-sex marriage. So I would encourage you, if you didn't, weren't able to be here, to uh, try to listen to that at some point. So we begin with the one man, one woman, and then, as I say, who are equally yoked. Let's take a look at that. And this, this is for all of us, but it is uh, especially for those of you who are not married yet and you who are not even dating yet, you children, you young teens, this is essential. This is, this is key for your future. Being equally yoked to, to capsulize it basically means a believer married to a believer. A child of the living God married to another child of the living God. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, says this. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. By the way, there's the permanence, the permanent part of marriage. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whomever she wishes only in the Lord. Did you hear what he said? He starts out by uh, saying, okay, if, if, you're, if you're going to marry, he gives this, the, the broadest terms, the least restriction possible, where he says, you're free to marry whom, whom she wishes so it's, it's like unrestricted, and then he gives an absolute restriction. Only in the Lord. So it's whoever you want to marry in the Lord. So the narrow part is in the Lord, and then after that it's whoever you want to marry. That's the right way for the believer to look at it. Paul's saying if your husband dies, you can marry anyone you want, long as he's a Christian. Now, why does he say that? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then he tells why. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now, where do we get that term? Well, the idea of being yoked is like two animals literally hitched together, okay? You ever hear marriage talking about getting hitched? Okay? So, it, the idea is... Uh, them uh, pulling a wagon or pulling a plow or something together. Now, in Deuteronomy 22, God prohibits people from plowing with 
in, in the yoke with a donkey and an ox. Why is that? Well, it, it it's illustrates, doesn't it? They're different sizes. They're different strengths. They're completely different animals. It's not going to work. You're not going to be able to plow straight. It's not going to work if you put two animals that are that different in the same yoke. Do you get it? You see the illustration here? That's why Paul is saying that we shouldn't be yoked with unbelievers. Now, that includes, it's more inclusive than marriage. It includes partnerships and, and other close relationships. Doesn't mean you can't be friends. It should be friends with unbelievers. But close, intimate relationships. But it certainly also includes marriage. Now, there's a lot of prohibitions in the Old Testament uh, where God says a, a Jew should not marry a non-Jew. And some have wrongfully interpreted that to say, well, what he was talking about there is that uh, you shouldn't marry outside your race. That's not what he was talking about there at all. It cannot be interpreted that way. Because we see Moses in Numbers 12 marrying outside his race. What the concern was, and it's not condemned, what the concern was is marrying outside of the faith. In other words, a Jew with one that doesn't believe in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. That was the problem. I'd never say that a believer and an unbeliever can't love each other. And I am very conscious that there are a number of folks in our church who are married to unbelievers. I would never say you cannot have a good marriage or that you couldn't love each other even in a very deep way. Of course you can. And you can have a long marriage where you're kind to one another and generally happy. But here's the point. And this is for you who are not yet married or not yet dating or if you're dating now. If your spouse doesn't share your faith, and by the way, those folks I just mentioned, they will tell you this. If your spouse doesn't share your faith, there is an aspect of you they can't really understand. In marriage, we should be able to be as open as possible with our spouse. That should be the place where we can totally be ourselves, where we can understand and be understood by someone else like no one else out there. And if you're a believer, 
and your faith is the most important thing in your life, which is what it should be, your trusting in Christ is the most important thing to you, and you can't share that with your spouse because they don't get it. They might be fine with you doing your Christian thing or going to church. They might even be very supportive of that. But you have to have places in your heart that are opaque to them, that they can't see and they can't understand, and you can never share. Or at least share in a way that you could with a fellow believer. And that's the concern of God, and it's the concern of the Apostle Paul. You should not have to hide or hold back your greatest joys in life. And if you are unequally yoked, you choose to go that route, you will have to. What about application of this? terms of dating, if you're a believer in Christ, you should not allow yourself to get into a dating relationship with an unbeliever. I know that's hard. That's hard to say. It's hard to hear. Well, why? It's just dating. Everyone in this room that is married will tell you what happens when you date? You date, and if you continue to date, the closer you get, and then you fall in love. And then, if you then make that decision and say, I, I can't marry, you, you, you won't do that. That's the problem. So you've got to be careful on the front end rather than being in the relationship and then having to pull back from it. Maybe they'll come to Christ. Dating is not for evangelism. And sadly, too often it works the other way around. It, it works where the one who is seeking to follow Christ over time, is worn down and becomes less committed rather than the other one coming to Christ. Now, I know of cases where, where it has happened, where a spouse, unbelieving spouse has come to Christ. Praise God for that. He can overcome even that. But you can't enter into dating and marriage with that as your plan because too often it does not work out that way. If you come up to me and you tell me you're dating someone, believe it or not, I have people say that. You know what my first question, my very first question is going to be to you? Is he a Christian? Is she a Christian? If you tell me you're dating someone, I'm not going to go, yay, I'm glad you're dating, good. Is he a Christian? Is she a Christian? 
And you know what? Some people get offended by that. Not when the person is a Christian, but they get offended that that's my first question. But you know who else I've asked that question to every time they've gone into dating relationships? My children. Because I love them deeply. And I don't want them to to, uh, disobey God on the front end. So before I know the name of the one they're dating or anything else about them, I say, is he a Christian? And I don't want to hear, oh, he, he used to go to church. No, does he know the Lord? Is she trusting in Christ alone for her eternal life? Because that's the key. And if I ask you that question, you say no. I will tell you, now I know you won't be asking me that, this question now, but <laughs> now we're into theoretical, I know. But if you, if you were to do that and you say no, I will tell you you shouldn't be dating that person. Not because I want you to be unhappy, but from God's perspective, it's not a suggestion, it's a command from Him for your good and for His glory. Those two things are big. For your good and for His glory. What about marriage? In terms of getting married, at St. Andrew's, we will only marry two believers. If your fiancé is not a believer and you're determined to marry him or her anyway, against God's command, Save yourself and save us a conflict. Don't, don't come try to get it here. We can't, because, because uh, weddings are a worship service, we can't pretend like God is going to somehow bless that which he has said don't do. So we won't do it here and we can't because God has been so clear on that. What if I'm already married to an unbeliever? Listen to God's Word, 1 Corinthians seven twelve. He says this, If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Verse 14, the latter part. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. So if you're unequally yoked, if you're already married to an unbeliever, and look, there are lots of reasons that could have happened. Maybe you didn't know. Maybe no one had ever taught you this before. That happens. There are churches that never mention this because it's, you know, it hurts people's feelings. It's not very loving to not mention this if God says it so clearly. But I understand not everybody knows this. Or maybe you got married, you were both unbelievers, and one of you came to Christ. Well, Paul addresses that. He says if, if your spouse will stay with you, then stay married. It doesn't fix things to then get a divorce. 
We'll see what, how he feels about divorce here in a minute. And so if your spouse will remain, then you remain married. The next two weeks, and this is for anyone who is married. It's not just for two believers that are married. The next two weeks, we're going to talk about the wife's role and the husband's role from Ephesians 5. And by the way, that's for all mankind. It's not just for believers. Uh, so, biblical marriage is one man, one woman, equally yoked for life. And that for life is the next part we want to see. Billy Graham, who is one of my heroes, uh, before she died, had a wife named Ruth. Uh, Billy Graham would tell you she had a difficult time because he was the one that did all the traveling. She stayed home. She raised five children, and a lot of that was like a single parent. But they had a long, and they both would have said wonderful marriage. But Ruth Graham was asked one time, did she ever think about divorce? She said, no, I've never thought about divorce in all these 35 years of marriage, but I did think of murder a few times. <laughs> she was committed to not divorce, right? That's the ups and downs that I told you about earlier. What about divorce? You know, for a couple of decades, a statistic has been going around our country that 50% of marriages ends in divorce. And then from people in the church, they're saying, and the statistics in the church are not much different from that. Those statistics are wrong. They've been shown to be wrong. Unfortunately, they have been said so often that now it's become part of what everybody quotes, and you'll see it in articles and, and so on. There was a time back in the 70s when that was true for a brief period of time. Many sociologists are now saying that was a historical anomaly because of what was going on in the 70s. Remember the 70s? It makes sense that half of them were breaking up. But you know what? Even then... They weren't looking at the statistics in, in a fair way. They, you know, there were those that were married uh, and divorced multiple times, and, and so they threw all those in the same pot, and it made it look like one out of two were failing. The fact is, in the 90s, about 70% of marriages that began in the 90s reached their 15th anniversary. Now, I'm not saying that to say it's all okay. It's still too high. But that statistic is simply not right. I will tell you this too, that the statistic is way higher in terms of, uh, or way lower actually, of those who will get a divorce if you measure it by those that were in church last week. In other words, what they've seen is that 
people who are in church regularly, and that includes all kinds of churches, but in church regularly, that that does affect in a positive way staying married. That's good news. I am conscious that this subject of divorce touches a lot of people in this room. A lot of you have been divorced. So it affects you either personally or in your family. I told you Connie and I celebrate our 39th anniversary. We have a son who's been divorced. Now, it was a biblical divorce. We'll talk about that in a minute. He would have been considered the innocent party, but nevertheless, it was devastating to him and to our whole family. It was just devastating. So if you or someone in your family has been through it, you know it hurts. What does God say about divorce? The first thing, he makes it clear that to him, divorce is abhorrent. Malachi 2, verse 16. I'm going to quote to you from the New International Version. I'll tell you why in a minute. We, we, I typically read the English Standard Version. In the New International Version, it says in Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. Now, the English Standard Version says this, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faith, faithless. Now, I'm not a linguist to try to argue why in the Hebrew uh, that one translation, which, by the way, that first translation is closer to what the church has translated down through the centuries. But if you look at both of them side by side, they both agree God hates divorce. He's displeased with it. It's not his way. However, it's a reality in a fallen world. That leads to the next point. Divorce is always a result of sin. Matthew 19. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives but from the beginning, it was not so. We can't always nail it down to one particular sin that causes a divorce. But often, it is. But also in the big picture, it's because we live in a fallen world. And, and sin, you know, when two people get married, we're marrying two people who sin. Even if it's two believers, they both sin. That's a, that's a combination that can cause conflict. But if divorce takes place, there is sin somewhere involved. Thirdly, there are two conditions where divorce is permissible. 
never required. It's permissible according to the Scripture. And by the way, in our standards in the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, they agree with this, obviously, because uh, of the Scripture. But number one is for sexual unfaithfulness. Matthew 19, verse 9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now the word translated here, sexual immorality, is the word, I'm going to say it because you will recognize where, 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 what words we get from it, the word pornea. So it's not just talking about adultery, it's talking about all kinds of sexual unfaithfulness. That's the first reason. Sexual sin in general, not just adultery, but certainly includes adultery. And then the second biblical reason is willful desertion. 1 Corinthians 7.15 If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. This is talking about abandonment of the marriage by the unbeliever. Now, in my view, abandonment does not always mean in terms of physical proximity. In other words, one can abandon the marriage covenant without actually leaving the house. There are ways that that can happen. For instance, listen to Paul in 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's one way one can abandon a marriage. The fourth uh, thing for us to understand is even for biblical divorce, there may be temporal consequences. In other words, just because a divorce is, is, is biblical, is permissible, more often than not, there's going to be Uh, things you have to deal with in this world because of that, especially if there are children, when there are families and other relationships. We just have to know that. Fifth, reconciliation is, is always to be preferred to divorce. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. It's always better to reconcile. It doesn't always work, but that is always to be preferred. So in terms of application here, remarriage. If the divorce was biblical, Remarriage is a possibility. But what if one had an unbiblical divorce, therefore should have remained unmarried, but instead got remarried? Well, the answer is to stay married. You're not going to undo things or fix things by a second divorce at that point. You can't say, I didn't do it God's way, so that gives me an out. That's not 
not the case. You stay married and ask for God's forgiveness. God hates divorce and sin is always involved, but that's why Jesus went to the cross. It's not the unpardonable sin. We don't enter into it thinking, oh, he'll forgive me. I know it's wrong and all. But if you've already been through that, understand that's another reason why he was hanging on the cross for you. When I do premarital counseling, we look at the couple's personalities. We talk about the difference between men and women. Oh, boy, yeah. We talk about the importance of communication and all the challenges there. You know what? Someone could legitimately wonder, was marriage just God's cruel joke that he played on mankind? How can any marriage last? When I look at all of the things that potentially can go wrong between any two people, Here's what we need to cling to. It wasn't his cruel joke. It was his wonderful gift. But within that, we must enter it and live out our marriage God's way if you want to experience that gift in all of its wonder. Secondly, we need to walk in faith and be filled with the Spirit if our marriage is to be what it can be. Here on Pentecost Sunday, it's a reminder that God's Holy Spirit that indwells in His people will enable us to walk in the Spirit and that which the world says cannot last or if it doesn't, it's no big deal by His Spirit. We can grow in our faith and walk in our faith and live His way. But in any case, we must live a life of repentance and forgiveness. Both sides. Repentance and forgiveness if we live with our spouse as long as we both shall live. If you can't both repent and forgive your marriage will not last. And both of those can be very difficult. That's why we need His Spirit. If you have had a marriage that has failed, or you're in a failing marriage, God will not abandon you if you're His child. Start right where you are. Depend upon His grace. Depend upon the Lord Jesus Christ who lives in you to continue on. Let's bow together. Lord, this is beyond us. For some who have heard this, there are decisions to be made. 
We need your strength. We need to be able to walk in your spirit. We cannot do this in our own strength. And so will you help us. And Lord, for those in this room who are married, will you protect that marriage from the evil one who loves to see God's children in contention with one another? Will you protect us in that? Help us to live lives of repentance and forgiveness. We can only do that in you, and we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.